You must, O oh my brother, improve the soundness and sincerity of your niya. The Arabic is the islah niyati wa ikhlasiha. Islah and ikhlas. To make your niya salih. To make your niya correct and sound and proper and true. Ikhlas means to make it sincerely and purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not for any worldly gain, worldly purpose, and not for any impermissible gain, illicit purpose. Then you must examine them, you must reflect upon them, well, before embarking on your actions. So for this method of training that Imam al is teaching, this meaning is to be purposeful in life. That you don't do anything, or say anything, or decide anything, this is what he's about to say, without trying to connect it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it continues, for intentions are the basis of deeds. According to them, and according to your intentions, your deeds will be either will either be good or ugly, sound or unsound. So the Arabic for good and ugly is actually called husn and kubah. Husn means that which is praiseworthy to Allah subhanahu wa that which is beloved to Allah subhanahu wa and ugly actually means that which is detested and re- reprehensible in the regard of Allah subhanahu wa Sound or unsound, either your actions would be correct or they would be rendered null and void. Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa that indeed actions will be determined according to intentions. Each person will have precisely that which they intended. So he begins here by talking about niya and intention. The only way a person can make niya and intention is if they are conscious. And our problem is that we do a lot of things unconsciously, unthinkingly. And there are many, many times we could have made a good intention but we failed to do so. And there are many times that bad intentions creep into our actions when they didn't need to be there. Even, and this happens often spur of the moment. For example, you may be working in the workplace and your intention was simply to do the job that your boss or your supervising officer gave you. But at the moment when you were going to show them that work or complete that task or present in the meeting, you decided to snub your colleague a little bit. You decided to engage in a game of one-upmanship, although that wasn't your intention at all. From the moment you received the task until you completed the task, but at the spur of the moment, an improper, impure intention crept in. This happens because a person isn't weary and conscious and on guard of negative intentions creeping in. So this method of training is trying to make a person conscious about having a good intention and on guard and wary of ever a bad intention creeping in. Imam al-Dhar continues, You must therefore utter no word, do no action, and decide no matter without the intention of drawing near thereby to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seeking the reward that He has assigned through His beneficence and grace to the intended act. So this is the crux of niya that everything has to be done lillah. The first thing He mentions three things, words, actions, and decisions. And by decisions here it means any matter or affair of the batin or of the heart. Your decision, your resolve, your aspiration, your hope, your plan, anything that is in your batin, your inner self. And words and actions are in our zahir, in our outer, in our outward self. So it goes back to this concept of inner and outer that he had mentioned when he was talking about certainty. There's nothing you should do outwardly and nothing should even take place in your inner self, be it an emotion, a thought, a decision, or resolve, except that is done with the niya of getting the qurb of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seeking the fazl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Interestingly, in Quran al-Kareem also, Allah ta'ala sometimes when He mentions us earning risk or earning a halal livelihood in this world, He says, go and seek the fazl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That even the mundane, worldly, material things we do are described in our deen as seeking the fuzzle, bounty, and karam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
and know that drawing near to him can only be done through the obligatory and supererogatory, supererog means the faraid and the nawafil, that Allah Ta'ala has indicated through his blessed messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it means in terms of the ibadat and the akhlaq and the aqal that a person does, they have to be drawn from either that which is obligatory in deen or that which has been recommended and deemed praiseworthy in deen. And you're going to see how this applies even to basic mundane things as well. A sincere intention may change the merely licit, licit means permissible, mubah, the merely licit into the devotional. It changes that which is simply permissible into an act of ibadah, into an act of devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For means are judged according to their ends. For example, one may eat to get the strength to perform devotions in ibadat, or one may have relations with one's spouse to obtain a child who would be worshipful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are two of the most primary, sometimes called animalistic urges, primary urges of men, to eat and to procreate. And these things in and of themselves can't be called worship or ibadat. But if a person makes niyyah, then they can also be done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the example they gave for eating was the person eats with the niyyah, then I will get strength to perform devotions. Such as if, for example, you are fasting in Zul-Hijjah and you break your fast in Maghrib with the niyyah to eat. With the niyyah to eat. So that you may be able to perform some ibadah and devotion to Allah Subhanahu in the night. And generally, in any month and in any moment, whether a person is fasting or not, a person can eat. Now again, you will find that dunya has captured this. The cereal boxes of America teach you, and Scotland, that you should eat a hearty breakfast. I remember one cereal they called themselves the breakfast of champions. Allah Akbar, subhanAllah, Wheaties, the breakfast of champions. What did it mean? Eat well so you can perform well during the day. They understood this. They understood all the things that these Mashaikh of Tazki and Suluk used to teach. But they used it all for dunya. They used it all for dunya. Hmm? And then you have coffee or tea and people doing those things. Why? Consuming with the need to perform better. Athletes eating with the need to perform better. So this is a niyyah. And now it's not just about the niyyah giving you sawab with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's also about human psychology. And deen accepts that by the way. Sometimes atheists try to mock deen by bringing human psychology. No, deen 100% accepts that Allah ta'ala made us as psychological creatures. And you're supposed to use that psychology to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So just like that child, that's the whole purpose of advertising and marketing and labels and branding and logos, just like that child who stares at the back of the cereal box and eats the breakfast of champions will feel like a champion that day. Just like that, when you make niyyah that you're eating the food to get strength to worship Allah subhanahu wa it will work. And that's the power of niyyah. You will find the laziness and sluggishness in ibadah will disappear just because of the power of niyyah. So sometimes it's that simple and it truly is that easy. Then Imam al-Hadad, Ta'ala, mentions a very important thing. Allahu Akbar Kabira, this is really the strict level of training of these masters of the Islamic tradition. It is a condition. It's a shart. It's a condition for the truth of that niyyah. That behavior does not belay it. And literally, la yukandibu al-amal. That the person's practice should not bear lie to that person's niyyah. And he gives some incredible examples. Number one, for instance, a person who seeks knowledge, ilm of deen, claiming that his intention in learning deen is to practice it and teach it, will be proved insincere in his intention if when they become able to do so, they do not. In other words, after they acquire the knowledge of deen, they neither practice it themselves nor do they teach it to others. So their actions belittled, belied, falsified their intention. So it means there's something, there was some other intention. And that's a very important thing. And whether for this gathering or any gathering, the only reason to increase in your knowledge of deen is to increase in your practice of deen. 
Otherwise, there is no value in that additional knowledge unless it brings about additional practice. And then if you are blessed by Allah with tawfiq for that additional practice, then it's an amana that a person should share with others so they may be able to increase their amal and practice as well. Or, the second example he gives, now look at this, a person who pursues the world, and what he means, a person who earns a living, works and earns for a living and claims that he is doing so only so that he may be independent of other people, I'm earning because I want to be a self-sufficient contributing member of society and the economy and be able to give charity to the needy and help his relatives. And whatever surplus wealth I get, I'm not going to accumulate that, I will give it away to the poor and needy or I will use it to help out my relatives. But that person will be proved ineffectual, means his intention won't bear out, should he not do so when able. So when the person actually does earn, Fine, he might make himself independent of others, but does he really give the surplus wealth to the poor in charity? Does he really share the surplus wealth with his relatives? Or does he use the surplus wealth to buy surplus goods, which are called luxury goods? So if he gets surplus wealth, he gets moves from the Civic to the city. If he gets surplus wealth, he moves from the Civic to the Audi. If he gets surplus wealth, he moves from one thing to the other. So that means that intention that, no, no, I'm only earning in order to be self-sufficient and not to be a burden on others and then otherwise any extra earning, I will give it to the poor, use it for my family. It turns out you weren't true. You weren't true in that intention because then your actions belied your intentions. So it means that, okay, on the one hand, the intention has to be formulated before the action. Second, the intention has to be maintained throughout the action. Third, you have to make sure nothing pollutes or corrupts that intention during the action. And fourth, after the action, that will be the test where you're really true in that intention or not. Do you really follow up and follow through on your intention and complete the action for the very sake for which you initially intended it? Then he mentions the second important thing, which again, sometimes people don't understand. He said, That intentions will bear no relevance, have no impact, will not affect sins at all in any way. What does it mean that if you want to do a sinful act, but you say you have a good niyam? So no, a good intention cannot transform a bad action. So we had earlier, a good intention should be made for every good action. Second, a good intention can transform a licit, neutral action like eating and make that also earning the pleasure of Allah Ta'ala. But a good intention cannot have any transformative effect on a sinful action. No matter how good your intention is, the sin will remain a sin and it's still prohibited and forbidden to you. Now this is something again, right? Certain modernists and reformists using utilitarianism and looking at the benefit and the outcome, they suggested just go ahead and do it because the outcome is good. So that should be your intention. So for in deen, the ends do not justify the means. Deen is calling humanity to a higher level of ethical behavior that you must pursue noble ends and you must do so only through noble means. And you cannot try to get a noble end or objective through impermissible means, no matter how good your intention is. Alright? For example, if somebody says that, no, I will just accept bribery for the sake of my children, you can't do that. Many times it's children. For the sake of children, you cannot engage in sin. Alright? For the sake of deed, you cannot engage in sin. So the example it gives here is just as purification does not affect that which is by its very nature impure. What he's referring to is a hukm sharia legal ruling of the sharia, that if something is intrinsically impure, which is called najas al-ain, such as pork, no matter how many times you wash it, it's never going to be pure. It's intrinsically impure. So just like that sin ma'asi, that which Allah taala has prohibited, is intrinsically, essentially, irrevocably, irrevocably evil no matter how pure, noble, and intention you may make to commit that evil act. Then, he gives examples of this. So, number one, 
a person who goes along with another who is slandering a Muslim, then pretends that no, he only wanted to humor him, is he is himself a slander. So if he tries to come up with the intention that no, I was just listening to them, I didn't, you know, their social norms, they're my family, they're my boss, how could I tell him, how could I walk away at that moment, I had no choice, I had to indulge him, I had to humor him, no. That is an act of evil and you partook in that. At the same time, he mentions on the flip side, anyone who refrains from the enjoining of good and the forbidding of evil, which is known as Amr bil ma'ruf wa nahi anul munkar, anybody who doesn't do that and pretends that they only did so to protect himself against the culprit, that no, you know, if I said something, there would have been a big backlash, so I kept silent only to protect myself, is his partner, is the partner of that culprit in the evil doing? So this is, he has a whole chapter coming on this, but it's coming much later. It's not going to come in this week, right? Um, enjoying the good and forbidding the evil. So I'll just explain some points in that. So there's actually a very, very well-known and very important crucial hadith of Nabi Kareem sallallahu on this topic. And in that, the Prophet said that first, if you can, stop it by your hand. And by stop it by your hand, Nabi Kareem sallallahu doesn't mean through violent force. Stop it by your hand. Hand is a kanai, it means through action. Sometimes evil has to be repelled through dynamic action. You actually have to take proactive actions, acts, and steps to limit or counter injustice, oppression, and evil. Alright? Uh, it might be political action. It might be economic action. It might be social action. There are many different types of acts a person can do. Second, Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu said that if you cannot do that, then you should condemn it with your tongue. You at least must speak out for the truth, even if you're not able then to actually take measures and actions to stop that evil, you must at least condemn that evil. And third, then the Vyakarim said that if you can't even do that, then at the very least in your heart, you must have a karahat, a repugnance, a dislike. You should never become desensitized to that evil or injustice oppression. It must burn and sting and hurt your heart. And the reason why the Prophet said that is sometimes you have to consciously do that. Unless you try to make your heart feel the pain, the heart is often in danger of falling numb in the face of evil and justice. That's why Sayyidina Rasulullah also mentioned that towards the end of time, one of the signs of the Day of Judgment was that amongst this ummah and within the ummah and right in front of believers, there will be people who commit lewd and crude immodest acts and the believers will not be able to take any actions to prevent such immodesty, nor will they be able to even speak out against such immodesty. Hmm? But at the very least, they would have that third thing still, which is very dangerous because in this day and age, in the society we live in, we become desensitized because it becomes like a norm. And we feel abnormal. Because it, it's so widely adopted, these immodest practices, that people think that's normal, and anybody who doesn't do that is abnormal. For example, Allah SWT said in Quran al-Kareem, lower your gaze. If anybody lowers their gaze from the opposite gender while talking to them, it's viewed as abnormal, and impolite, and rude. And because of that, many believers feel too shy. They're more worried about creation viewing them as impolite and rude, as opposed to Allah Ta'ala viewing them as immodest. Alright? So here these were just some points on the enjoying and enjoying good and forbidding evil. A malicious intention, means evil intention, attached to a good deed spoils it. So now we had good intentions with good actions. Good intentions, neutral actions, good intentions have no effect on bad actions. Now he flips it. If you have a bad intention, even if the action is good, the bad intention ruins and spoils the good deed. And he gives an example, likewise when one performs good deeds for the sake of wealth and prestige. So somebody does a good amal in order to earn money somehow from that acts of deed. Or somebody does it for name, frame, recognition, prestige and status. So then he says, the strive, O oh my brother, always to intend that your obedience, all of your ita'at, obediences, should be solely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that whatever licit permissible things you may use are only to help you to obey. There's a very subtle line here. 
It even shows the way a person engages in the material pursuits of this world. That okay, Allah subhanahu wa you made it permissible for me to eat and sleep and earn and have friends and sit with them and talk with them. So okay, I indulge in it out of humility as your slave. That you out of your kindness and mercy made this permissible for me. Right? So I, I take this license, what we call ruksa. I take this license and I indulge in these things, but I only want to do these things so that they can help me become more pleasing to you. And if there's no, nothing in here that can make me more pleasing to you at all, then I'm not interested in it. I don't feel so inclined to indulge in it anymore. All right. Then he mentions that you can have multiple niyas for a single act. Know that many intentions can attach to a single act. And that each of them means every single intention will attract its own distinct full reward. An example. An example of this in ibadat, which is translating as devotional activities and acts of worship, is when someone reads and recites the Qur'an intending to commune with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which indeed he will be able to do. which is translated as commune I just because I don't want anybody to think about the Christian concept of communion munajat uh, means to speak intimately to Allah Swanta. sometimes munajat is also used for dua it means to have intimate discourse with Allah Swanta. so the ultimate initial reason this is also an ishara that why does anybody recite Quran even more than getting the knowledge from Qur'an, even more than getting the hidayah from Qur'an, is that they recite Qur'an as munajat to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the fazila, and you only get that when you recite the Arabic Qur'an. So when you do an English translation or Urdu translation or any other language translation, tafsir, that might be more beneficial than the Arabic original for people who don't know Arabic in terms of knowledge and guidance. But it's not munajat. It's not that discourse. It's not that communication. It's not Kalamullah, it's not Kitabullah. So the awwal primary original reason why a person recites Qur'an is for this reason. And then he says, which thing he will indeed do? I mean, that's inevitable. That's the nur of Qur'an, that that's inevitable whenever you recite Qur'an. But also then to make additional intentions, what? To extract from it different kinds of knowledge. So to try to get knowledge from Qur'an. For the Qur'an is the very mine of knowledge. Number two, to profit, to benefit those who listen or just happen to hear the recitation of Qur'an or any other good intention. So the more intentions you make for the single act, the more rewards you will get. Again, that requires a lot of deliberate thought. That requires a lot of creative, in fact, creativity. How many multiple ways can you link this act to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And in, in ibadat, there's so many ways. That even in the physical ones, so even in mundane so he gives an example of that. And an example in licit matters is to eat with the intention of obeying the command. So he had already given an early intention. And what was that? That was to uh, eat so that you can be strong to engage in the worship of Allah Now he's giving a second one, which is what I told you about that concept of permission. That you eat with the intention of obeying the commandment of Allah Taala. And Allah told you in Quran, Ya yuh nadheena amanu kulu min tayyibati ma lazak naakum washkuru lillah in kuntum iyyahu ta'budun That all you believe you should eat from that which Allah SWT has the noble, pure, wholesome things that Allah Taala Himself has provided for you. So the thing is, in other words, that when you eat, to actually think and make intention that I'm following the Quranic command from Allah Taala to eat. As opposed to I'm just satisfying and fulfilling a bodily urge to eat. So then that act of eating became ibadah. That act of eating became linked to Allah subhanahu wa And that's why Allah subhanahu wa issued this command in Quran. And when you eat with that niyyah, then you'll be more likely to follow through on the ayah, which is washkuru lillahi, to make shukr to Allah ta'ala. And if you eat just because you're hungry, nine out of ten times you won't make the dua at the end of eating. 
You won't offer your hamd and shukr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because at the outset you didn't have that intention that you're eating for the sake of Allah ta'ala out of his permission and out of gratitude to him. So again, you won't be able to follow up and follow through on the act. But if you begin the act that way, then you will end the act with the proper shukr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he gave that, he repeated what he said earlier, intend by doing so, yani by eating, by so doing, to acquire strength for devotion, yani kuwa for ibadah, and to put yourself in a situation where you must thank Allah Ta'ala. Sajid, that I want to eat because I want to put myself in a situation where shukr becomes lazim on me, where becoming grateful becomes necessary upon me. So I want to make myself enjoy the bounties of Allah Ta'ala. Why? Not just for the pleasure in them or the need for them, but because the more I enjoy his bounties, the more I will because of his abdun shukur. So this is a totally different way. Eating for the sake of being able to make more shukur to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, all, so this is, all of this is intention. Now you, re, you haven't even done two pages yet, but you can see these ulama and mashayik, the understanding of these concepts is much deeper than yours and mine are. We just think niya, we just think, okay, fine, I'll make a good niya, right? But it's very deep. They take these things very deeply. Then he quotes another verse uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, eat of your Rabb's provision and thank him. He says, you can apply these two examples in an analogous fashion to all other devotional ibadat and licit mubahat activities and always do your best to increase your good intentions. Alright, so the examples he gave was of reciting Quran, and of eating. He said for reciting Quran, take that as an example for any and every ibadah, whatever it is. Whether it's good akhlaq, whether it's sabr, whether it's khidmah, whether it's dawah, whether it's salah, whether it's fasting, whether it's dua. And try to make more and more intentions to link that worship with those mandala. And any mundane act, it's working, it's eating, it's sleeping, it's meeting, it's interacting, it's shopping, it's spending time with family. Try to do the same thing that he mentioned about eating. Alright? Then he goes deeper into the understanding of the word niya. So he continues, the word intention can have one of two meanings. The first of those two meanings is the aim, goal, objective, maqsad, which made you decide or do or say something. Taken in this sense, the intention is usually better than the act, when the act is good. For example, if you say, I want to fast in order to get qurb with Allah subhanahu wa with Allah ta'ala is even greater than a single fast. Right? I want to go on hajj to get forgiven, to get the rahmah of Allah ta'ala. So the rahmah of Allah ta'ala is even greater than the act of hajj. So normally, he's saying, normally in terms of deen, ibadat, the intention you make, as in intention, bimana, objective and goal, what you want out of that action is greater than the action itself. Because obviously in ibadah, what you want out of the action is Allah ta'ala. Right? To put it even simply, what you want out of every action and devotion and deen is Allah subhanahu ta'ala. And getting that nearness or pleasure or belovedness to Allah ta'ala is greater than any act in this world. So then we repeat again that, taken in this sense, intention is usually better than the act when the act is good. And worse when the act is evil. Worse when the act is evil. So for example, you say a mean sentence to hurt someone. That your intention was to hurt someone. Hurting someone is a much greater evil than maybe just the three words that you said. Maybe what you said, the act itself was just one sentence. But the niya behind that sentence, which was to hurt the person, that's much worse. So, the flip. So again, the intention is worse than the act when the act is evil. Then he quotes Sayyidina Rasulullah, he sallam, The intention of a believer is better than his action. And then Imam Muhammad comments, Notice how the Prophet ﷺ specifically mentioned the believer. Is this a notion? This is a mu'min. So a mu'min is part of their iman, that their acts aren't really neutral. Their acts have more value, their acts have more weight in the regard of Allah And a person who doesn't have iman, well then it's, it's not leading a conscious life. He's not living a purposeful life. His life and his acts and deeds and statements lack that weight that a believer does. So that means that for the believer, their good intention is better than their act, and their evil intention is more evil than the sin that they do. So for example, 
This is why these type of mashayikh also try to train us to take the evil intentions out because they're worse than the evil actions. For example, if a person does bribery or interest or corruption with the intention of greed, so the greed is even worse than the act itself. So the real illness that they need to be cured of is the greed. It's not just a single act of corruption. The real illness they need to be cured of is the lust, not just the single misdirecting of the gaze. The real illness they need to be cured of is the pride, not just the single one statement that they said to belittle someone or scoff at someone. So this is that notion, right? That the evil intention of the believer is better than their action. And when it's evil, it's even worse than their action. So the intent and the reason why a person sins, put it that way, is oftentimes worse than the sinful act itself. So this is the first meaning of intention. You start by saying there were two meanings. The first is the aim and objective and purpose. The second, the second is your decision and determination to act. So in English it's called resolve. Niyat means your irada. You may not, irada, your resolve. Taken in this sense, it is not better than the act then. It's not better than the act itself. So you make niyat to pray salah. And then you pray salah. The praying salah itself is better than just your niyat to pray. Because maybe you had niyat, you weren't able to follow through, so that would have been lacking. So actually following up on that resolve is better. The action itself is better than the intention. I think you understood what he's trying to say. Right? Okay. Then he goes on and tackles this issue of intention from another division. And he's going to make three situations here. So the next way he looks at the intention. A person, when they decide to do something, can only be, means can necessarily be in one of three situations. Those of you who are studying Darus Nizami, Teen Hal Sikhalime. This is how the captain Urdu. So this is the Arabic tradition. The Arabic way of understanding knowledge is really loving to make categories and subcategories and classifications and divisions, which is called mane and jame, all encompassing and all inclusive and at the same time all exclusive. Here, so three situations. Number one, he decides and acts. He's taken in the second way. In Nia, taken the second way, which is your decision, you resolve, you rather to do something. So first situation, he has the irada, and number two, he does amal on the irada. Intention plus action. Alright? Number two, second possibility, he decides but fails to act while able to. He had irada to pray fajr when he heard the alarm, but he fails to get up and actually pray it. He had irada to control his gaze at that day on campus, but he actually failed to do it when he showed up. Right? But he had the irana. He did have a resolve, did have an intention, so that was there, but uh, they failed to act while able to. So then he ex- uses the hadith of Nabi Karim Sallallahu to understand these two situations. And he writes, the way to evaluate these two situations can be clearly found in that which Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala al-Humah has transmitted that Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, that Allah Ta'ala has written good and evil deeds, then rendered them clear. Now by written, what it means is that Allah Ta'ala also creates acts. Allah Ta'ala creates the act, the ability to act, the choice to act, the decision to act, the determination to act, the resolution to act, the resolve to act, and those things are clear. Right? Then, and then rendered them clear, Allah Ta'ala made them clear. Anyone who intends makes a resolve in irada to do a good deed, but does not actually follow up and do it, Allah Ta'ala still records it as one good deed. It's something many of you would have heard, right? That if you make niyyah to do something good, even if you're unable to do it, in your book of deeds you still get one good deed. Whereas if they make resolve and intention to do it, and then they even perform and do that act, then Allah Ta'ala records it as 10 good deeds, or up to 700 good deeds, or even more. This is up to Allah Ta'ala. And some ulama of hadith would even compound this. That is that when you made niyyah, for example, resolved to wake up for fajr, you got one good deed right there for the niyyah. You prayed fajr itself, you got at least 10, so that's 11 actually. You got 10, maybe 700, maybe even more. Maybe even more. Now this is up to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Now how does Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala decide that? There are two ways. 
One is Allah SWT decides on the basis of some mi'ar. You may look at the person, the quality of their feather, right? Or the sacrifice they made for that act. Or Allah Ta'ala decides simply on the basis of his cousin. Yutihi man yasha, however he wants. To whomsoever he gives. He may give some person just 10 rewards. He may give a person 700 rewards. He may give a person 7 billion rewards. Yeah? He can give 7 trillion rewards. Allahu Allah. Allahu Allah. But that doors only opened up when you follow up on the resolve and you actually have the action. And the same, so Nabi, continuing the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, if that person intends an evil deed and does not do it, Allah Ta'ala records it as a good deed. Him abstaining from the evil deed actually gets recorded as a good deed. And you would have said, okay, Allah Ta'ala would be nice and not record anything. But actually records that as a good deed. So now if you look at it, when you made niyyah for a good deed, couldn't do the good deed, got one good deed. Made niyyah of the bad deed, didn't do the bad deed, also got one good deed. They're both different. One was intending to do something good, and the other was intending to do something bad. The one failed to do something good, he got one good deed. And the one stopped himself from doing the something bad, and he got one evil deed. But if he intends and does it, if he intends an evil deed and goes ahead and does it, Allah Ta'ala records it only as one evil deed, not ten, not seven hundred, not many more. So that's purely in Allah Ta'ala's rahmah. Otherwise Allah Ta'ala could have used mi'ar again. Okay, let me look how evil and sinister was the person's intention. If it was a very evil intention, we'll write seven hundred bad deeds for them. If it was even worse intention, we'll write seven billion bad deeds for them. So Allah Ta'ala's rahmah is such and his rahmah is ghalib on all of his other attributes. That no matter how evil the intention or how intensely evil the intention, behind that evil action, still the person only gets one evil deed. So these were the two situations of the three. The first is the person decides and acts, and the second is they uh, decides but fails to act. And the third, that the person, he de- the person determines upon something which he, he is for the time being unable to do and says that were I able, I would do such and such a thing. He receives the same as the one who acts, whether this be for or against him. So what does this mean? That sometimes you don't even have the ability to do it. So it's just a wish, a tamanna, a wish, a desire. And he's going to explain it using another hadith. So he says, the evidence for this is the saying of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. People are of four kinds. Number one, a person to whom Allah Ta'ala has given knowledge and wealth. Knowledge and wealth. And who uses his knowledge to manage his wealth. Allah has been given knowledge of deen, knowledge of sharia, knowledge of what is pleasing and displeasing to Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala and has been given wealth and uses his knowledge of deen to manage his wealth. That's the first kind. Second, another person who says that were Allah Ta'ala to give me just as he had given so-and-so, I would act like him. If I had the knowledge of that person, I would act the way they do. If I had the wealth that they do in the given charity, I would give in that charity. If I had a million dollars, I would have also given it away in charity. So they don't have it, right? But Allah Ta'ala would give them the same reward. The same reward as the people, person who actually gave the million dollars in charity will be given to the person who truly, sincerely, truly in his heart feels that if I had it, I would have done it also. And the other two types are going to be from the negative side. And a man to whom Allah Ta'ala has given wealth but no knowledge, who therefore mishandles his wealth through ignorance, so that person will get some, will end up in sin. And the other says that were Allah Ta'ala to give me as he has given so and so, I would act like him. If I had the same amount of money, I would go ahead and buy an Audi in a car where people are dying of poverty every day. Mm. So that's again. Oh, Akbar. Mm. So then, it would be the same. Be the same. Be the same. Their burdens of sin are equal. Okay, I can't say that buying an Audi is permissible. Don't get me wrong. Right? 
Buying an Audi, strictly speaking, from a Sherry perspective, is 100% permissible. But doing so at two or three times, I think, the price of an Audi in America, in a country where people are suffering from extreme poverty, let's just say it's mahal nazar I wouldn't call it really haram outright. Okay? But let's say, let's take something haram, that a person has money and uses it to sin. Because you know there are a lot of sins, let's just put it that way, that money can buy. And a person thinks to themselves, oh, if I had money like that person, I would also use money to buy those sins. Then that person, he just had the wish, he didn't even do the sin, will be as sinful on the day of judgment as the person who did the sin himself. Right? Now, obviously the hadith itself has many teachings in it, but Imam Hadad brought it here to show the power of intention, the power of resolve, the power of wish. And you can work it for you, or you can work it against you. That's basically the khalas of this. And that's again one of our big failures, that we have failed to use this power of niyyah to bring us closer to Allah SWT. And we've taken it for granted, or we've chosen to be largely unconscious of it. Alright. Next chapter, which is actually even shorter than this one, is a chapter on vigilance. So this is going to be the third chapter of Book of Assistance for Salat al-Mu'awana. Alright. Vigilance in Arabic actually uh, is uh, the Arabic title of his fasl is on muraqabah. Muraqabah is not referring to any particular method of zikr. Muraqabah means to always be aware of Allah SWT. And to make yourself aware and keep yourself aware of Him, that's why the trend that he used the word vigilance. To maintain vigil. To maintain a vigil on your heart or for your heart to maintain its own vigil and always being aware of the existence of Allah SWT. So he writes, you must, O my brothers, be mindful of Allah SWT in all your movements in times of still, stillness. In your harakat and sakanat, this was also a way the Arabic tradition would write. It means in every second. In all of your movements and all and on times of stillness. At every moment, with every blink of the eye, with every thought, wish, or any other state. Always be aware of Allah SWT. That will happen when you keep vigil. The reason this word vigil was used is like a guard. So when the watchman or guard stands guard, what is he supposed to do? He's a good guard. He's supposed to be vigilant throughout his entire 8-hour, 10-hour shift. Every blink of the eye, every thought is supposed to be on keeping that vigil. That's called a real guard. So we're supposed to be guardians of our heart and guardians of our zikr of Allah SWT. Guardians of our awareness of Allah SWT. So that never a moment passes except they're aware of Allah SWT. Then he explains a beautiful way to do that. How? He says, feel his nearness to you. Have shu'ur of his qurb to you. Try to be deeply aware and feel his qurb to you. And you should know that he is always gazing upon you. Feel his vigilance of you and that will enable you to feel vigilance towards him. Try to be aware of, or reflect on how aware he is of you and that will make you more aware of him. And then he says that there is nothing, uh, nothing that you conceal is hidden from Allah SWT. And then he mentions some ayat of Quran al-Kareem, nothing that weighs so much as an atom is hidden from your Rabb, whether on earth or in heaven. And another ayah, when you speak aloud, Allah Ta'ala knows your secret thoughts, and that which is even more hidden. And the third ayah, that He is with you wherever you are. And then Imam Allah explains that, in what sense is Allah Ta'ala with you? He is with you with His knowledge, with His awareness, with His power. And if you are of the righteous, if you are of the righteous, means if you are of the salihin, if you are the salihin, then what will happen? Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, he has written in Arabic to Abrar, but if you are of the righteous, the Abrar, salihin, muttaqeen, then Allah ta'ala will send his hidayah upon you, he will send his own, his nusrat, his help upon you, and he will keep you in his hifazah, he will protect you. Now, 
if you can combine these two things, it means a person becoming amongst the righteous by obeying Allah Ta'ala and leaving sin, and being aware of Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala, then what happens is you will become aware of these three things. You will feel, and you will be aware of Allah Ta'ala's hidayah. You will feel Him guiding you. You will be aware and you will feel Him helping you. And you will be aware and you will feel His protecting you. And that's the enjoyment those people have. That's why Allah Ta'ala described them in Quran, La khawfun alayhim wa Then one beautiful way he explains this in the next paragraph, which really is a, you know, a, a very important thing. Have modesty before your Rabb. Have modesty before your Rabb as you should. Make sure that he never, he never sees you in a situation where he has, for, which he has forbidden to you. Allah That's vigilance. I never want my Allah to see me doing something he doesn't want me to do. I never want Allah knowing me to be in a way that he didn't want me to be. That's how you get this awareness. Allah And that's the benefit of this awareness. That's the thamra, that's the fruit and the product of this awareness. Have modesty before your love as you should. Make sure that he never sees you in a situation which he has forbidden you and that he never misses you where he has commanded you to be. He's commanded you to be there for salah and he misses you there. You're not there, you're absent. Hmm? He should never miss you where you commanded you to be. Ajib. So this is when you feel, when you feel Allah is tracking me. I'm being tracked by Allah SWT, I'm being watched by Allah SWT. Worship him as if you saw him, for even if you do not see him, he sees you. So this is a hadith of Nabi Akrim Sallallahu Alaihi He's mentioning in the message on the next page also. That you should worship Allah Ta'ala as if you see him, and if you're not able to see him, know that he sees you. Both of these things are levels of awareness, levels of vigilance. Then he says with a very relevant advice for us. Whenever you notice in yourself any laziness in his worship, or you notice in yourself an inclination to disobedience, and these are the two things basically that we have, laziness in worship, inclination to disobedience, laziness, slackness, luggage in worship, in ibadah, and temptation and attraction to sin. Whenever you see any of these things, remind yourself, that Allah Ta'ala hears and sees you and Allah Ta'ala knows your secrets and secret conversation. It means the conversations you have with yourself, the conversations you have with your nafs, the ruminations and thoughts and secret desires that you harbor, Allah Ta'ala knows all this. If this reminding does not benefit your nafs, because of the inadequacy, going back to the chapter in Yudin, because of the inadequacy of its knowledge of the majesty of Allah Ta'ala, so you tell yourself, Allah is going to see me do the sin, and that doesn't stop you. What does it mean? That the azmat of Allah SWT hasn't entered your heart. That you know you're under surveillance, and it still doesn't stop you. You know that He is aware, and He will know, and He is seeing, and it still doesn't deter you. It means His grandeur, and His might, and His splendor is not. You haven't given Him the rank, You're not esteemed Allah Ta'ala as it is His right to be esteemed. So then he gives a second, second, second method. Second then, remind your nafs then of the two noble angels. Two noble angels who record good and evil deeds and recite to it. Allah Akbar. So then he actually says that you should recite to yourself or in, so to speak recite to your nafs these ayat of Quran al-Karim. So this is Surah Qaf, which is Surah 15, verses 17 to 18. So this is referring to Kiram and Katibin. That you have these angels and scribes on your right and on your left. Alright? So that person will not utter any loves, cannot even utter any pronouncement, because he knows that those recorders and those watchers are ever ready to record what he says and do. To try to make that. Then he goes third. 
If this reminding does not influence your nafs, then third, remind your nafs of the proximity of death, the imminence of moat, that you will die, and that death is the nearest of all hidden and awaited things. Frighten your nafs of its sudden pouncing, whereby if it does come when it is in an unsatisfactory state, it will end up in endless perdition. Means if, the, if death comes to you in a state where your spiritual state is not good, and you leave this world without being from the Salihin, Muttaqeen, you might end up in an endless, infinite, eternal damnation in the fire of Jahannam. So all these in one one line is mentioning, there's more coming, and all of these one one line is mentioning how, if you find yourself unaware, you can't do the vigilance, you find yourself unaware, or you find your awareness is there, but for some reason the awareness is not strong enough to stop you from disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You should do these, these, these things. Alright? So to go back again, number one, he began by saying you should have modesty in front of your Rabb. Never let him see you in a place where he doesn't want to see you. And let him not find you absent in a place where he commanded you to be. Alright? And when you find that these two things, laziness, laziness in deen, amal, akhlaq, or inclination, temptation, attraction to sin, and you have to remind. Remind your nafs, one, that Allah is all aware, all hearing, all seeing. If that doesn't work, remind yourself of Karam and Katami and the two angels. If that doesn't work, number three, remind yourself of mouth and of death. And, and, and in that you can say, number four, the threat of punishment. Five, if that doesn't work, so it continues, if this threat is of no use, the threat of punishment, then fifth, remind it of the immense reward which Allah has promised those who obey Him. Think what you'll get if you stay away from that sin. Think how much Allah will bestow upon you if you stay away from that sin. Think of the reward, the utter and sawab you will get if you make yourself pleasing to Him. Maybe that will attract you. That will attract you. It means that reward will be more attractive than the sin. The reward will be more attractive than the sin. Hmm? That's another part of deen. That's something we lack. Our love for Allah Taala should make us more attractive to Him than any other sin. So somebody says this, well, you know, what can I do? I'm still, I, that's my nature, I'm attracted, I'm tempted. Okay, so hold on. First we tried a couple of things to scare that attraction out of you. If that didn't work, okay, the attraction is still there, the temptation is still there. Then we try to remind you that there's a higher attraction. Your attraction to Allah Ta'ala. So even if you say the attraction is there for the sin, I can't get it out. So then override, use the override mechanism with the greater, higher, superseding attraction to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That should be there then. Then a person can say, oh no, I'm so tempted. You say, fine, okay, we don't, we don't even go there. You say, I'm human, I'm weak, uh, whatever. Why don't you have a greater temptation for Allah ta'ala? Why don't you have a greater attraction to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Then what's the answer? Hmm? Then what's the answer? So then it goes back to Yaqeen. All, you can say it's all going to go back to that first chapter. It goes back to Yaqeen. Reminded of the immense reward which Allah has promised those who obey Him and the painful torment with which He has threatened those who disobey Him. Say to it, O Nafs, after death there will be no opportunity to make Tawbah. And there will be after this worldly life of yours, either the garden, paradise, Jannah, or the fire, Jahannam, Nah. Choose if you will. Choose and make the choice if you will of obedience. The consequences of triumph, contentment, or mortality in vast gardens and gazing upon the countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the generous, the beneficent. Or choose if you will, otherwise disobedience, the consequence of which is degradation, humiliation, mockery, deprivation, and imprisonment between layers of Jahannam. Imprisonment between layers of fire. Endeavor to cure your soul with such reminders when it neglects obedience and inclines to rebellion. And that's how you have to view a sin as it's a rebellion against Allah Disloyalty to Allah for their useful medicines for the heart diseases. If you find emerging in your heart when you call to mind Allah when you call to mind the fact that Allah observes you, a shyness that prahayah that prevents you from disobeying Him and drives you, moves you, motivates you to exert yourself in obeying Him, 
then you are in possession of something, the realities of vigilance, realities of Mahakama. So I think here you're also getting a very good, just in a couple of paragraphs you can understand what this training is. What does it mean? What did the Mashai teach? What did they train? What did they talk about? How do they help people? How do they guide people? And these are the tips and these are the techniques and these are the motivations and inspirations that a person needs. It says only when you find it in your own heart, what? It's not even enough, it's not just dhikr, not just remem- remembrance and awareness of Allah Ta'ala, that that remembrance and awareness prevents you from disobeying Him. And that remembrance and awareness drives and motivates you to excel in your obedience and worship of Him. Then you have something, He says, you have something of the realities of vigilance. You have something. It's not just about, oh, you know, I went to a poetry recital and I said, hoo-ha and va-va. Hmm? Hmm? Sima. Hmm? It's not. So what? When you left the poetry recital, you showed up at work the next day. Did you remember Allah Ta'ala and obey Him? Then we'll say, yes, the poetry moved your heart in a beneficial way. Did you stay away from sin? Did it change your life? And if it didn't, then the poetry moving you during the poetry recital is of no benefit. It's fluff. It's of no benefit. Know that vigilance is one of the most noble stations, high positions and lofty degrees. It is the station of Asam, indicated in the saying of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This we already have explained to you. That what is Asam? To worship Allah Ta'ala as if you saw Him. For if you do not see Him, then know that He sees you. Alright? So, trying to get this Yaqeen, this Asam, requires a person to be vigilant over their heart. First step to be vigilant is to be conscious about your intention. Constantly make niyyah, constantly make niyyah. That's the best way to become vigilant over your heart. Each believer has faith that nothing on earth or in heaven is concealed from Allah SWT, and that Allah falls with him wherever he is, and that none of their movements or times of stillness are concealed from him. But the important thing is that this awareness be permanent and that its results appear. Why? Because if it's not permanent, this, as soon as you lose the awareness, you'll sin. It's like it takes a minute to sin. So the reality is if you are aware of Allah Ta'ala for 23 hours and 59 minutes, and you're unaware for one minute, when you're unaware in that one minute, Allah Ta'ala will make, oh, shaitan or nafs will make you do a sin. It might be a sin of lust, might be a sin of the tongue, might be a lie, might be a bad intention even. And bad intention can take a second. So that's why they kept pushing that don't think, okay, oh, I felt something in my prayer once that night. We'll go further, go more. Keep pushing it, keep pushing it, keep pushing it until you try to get permanence in your awareness and vigilance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because any lapse is critical. It's like your physical heartbeat. If your heart starts beating for 30 seconds, it's over. You can't say, oh, my heart was beating for 24 hours and 59 minutes and 30 seconds. You say, yeah, but it's the lapse the 30 second lapse is critical. It's life threatening. So just like that, our lapse and our spiritual heartbeat, the spiritual heartbeat, the spiritual pulse is the constant remembrance and awareness of Allah SWT. When you have a lapse in that, it's threatening and critical to the spiritual life of a person. And the second thing is that its results appear. So the awareness itself has a higher objective, which is ubudiyah, slavery and obedience to Allah SWT. The least of which, Least of those results, least, is that the slave does nothing when alone with Allah Ta'ala. Alone with Allah means when they're alone, when you're separate from creation, but you're never alone. This is another very subtle ishara he's saying. Whenever you're alone, yani there's no creation, you should view that I'm alone with Allah. That's how you should feel. I'm alone with Allah in my room. I'm alone with Allah Ta'ala at night. I'm alone with Allah Ta'ala in the car. That's how you should feel. I'm alone with Allah Ta'ala. That he would be show, he would be ashamed of. They should not do anything that he would be ashamed of. Should a man of virtue see him? So if you wouldn't want a pious person to see you do that act, then how in the world can you handle that? Allah Taala is intensely gazing upon you doing that. This is rare. It's rare for people to reach this stage, and it eventually leads to that which is rare still, whereby the servant is totally. Immersed in Allah Ta'ala, this I will explain to you by
be aware of you. Grant us that awareness, Ya Rabb, that keeps us away from sin. Grant us that remembrance, Ya Rabb, that makes us passionate in our deen. Remove the laziness from ourselves. Remove the slackness from ourselves. Remove the sinful temptations from our heart. And then make, make us attracted to you, attracted to deen, attracted to amal. Grant us ilm, Ya Rabb. Grant us hidayah, Ya Rabb. Send us upon us your rahmah and maghfna, Ya Rabb. And then make we ask that you give us tawfiq. Each and every one of us shall be green to practice all the lessons learned, to learn the lessons better, to practice them better, to share them with others. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Rabbi, ask that you accept all of the hundred of Ajaj, all of the du'as of this Ummah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, I ask that you accept all the ulama and mashayikh, all the students of learning, all the seekers where they are. Ya Rabbi Kareem, that no one who has ever sought you for even one second of their life ever be mahroom of the destination. Ya Rabbi Kareem, honor that moment, honor that niyyah, honor that intention, honor that striving. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, connect us all to deen, connect us on sirat al-mustaqeem. Ya Allah, Ya Alhamdulillah, Ameen. Rabbana takambal minna innaka anta sameeun aleem. Watumbu alayna innaka anta tawab al-raheem. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Bi rahmatika ya alhamdulillah.